everyone. Welcome back to the Live with Rachel podcast. I'm Rachel, and today we're going to be continuing our study through the book of Romans. In the last episode, we looked at what Paul was saying to the Gentiles about how humanity has rejected having a relationship with God and has chosen to worship other things in life and what the consequences of those actions are. Those, what he was saying was specifically to the Gentiles. And then in this section, he's going to be addressing the Jews. I don't know if I made it clear in the last episode that he was talking to the Gentiles, but I want to make it clear now. (laughs) So yeah, Paul in that section was contrasting God's righteousness against humanity's unrighteousness. He was making the point that until we know how much of a real sinner that we are, we can't begin to appreciate Jesus' sacrifice for us. That episode was a pretty grim section to read through, but today we're going to be reading through chapter 2, verse 1, through to chapter 3, verse 8. So let's just get straight into it. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 3 says in the New Living Translation, You may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad, and you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things, and we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? So in the last section that we read, um, the Jews were probably just clapping over the fact that Paul was really grilling the Gentiles. And side note, if you don't know what the Gentiles are like as a people, they're basically just people who weren't Jews, someone who wasn't of the Israelite heritage. Anyway, Back then, it was very common for the Jews to hate the Gentiles, and this was usually because the Jews had religious pride and they viewed everyone else as sinners who just completely disregarded God and never did anything right. So in order that they didn't get affected by them, they just tried not to have anything to do with the Gentiles. But in this section, Paul is now turning around to the Jews and criticizing their judgmental attitude and He's basically pointing out that they're just as guilty and sinful as much as the Gentiles are. The Jews thought that they were free from judgment because they were God's chosen people, but Paul's actually saying here that God choosing the Jews should actually be increasing their responsibility and accountability even more. God's judgment is according to truth. He doesn't play favorites and he doesn't have one set of standards for the Jews and another for the Gentiles. He doesn't have one set of standards for the brand new Christian and he doesn't have another set for the Christian who's been a Christian for a very, very long time. If you go back and read Romans chapter 1 verses 29 to 32, I think you can't help but see that the point that he's making is that everyone is guilty of at least one of those sins that was listed in some shape or form. And it's kind of just like that old saying that says, when you're pointing a finger at someone, you actually have three more pointing back at you. So moving on, Romans chapter 2 verses 4 to 11 says, Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. A day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. 
there will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But God does not show favoritism. So this whole section basically emphasizes what I said earlier about because the Jews were God's chosen people, they should have realized that actually they had way more responsibility and way more accountability than anyone else. So therefore their guilt was way, 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 way greater. God was so good to them. He had given them a beautiful land, the law, a temple, the priesthood. God cared for them and they had so many more blessings. And he had been patiently enduring with all of their sins and rebellions and and sassy attitudes over the years. He even sent his son to die for their sins. And even after they killed him, God gave them more grace and withheld his judgment. And this is because God knows that it's not judgment and anger that leads people back to the right way, but instead it's the goodness and the love of God that brings people back to himself. However, Israel still didn't really change their minds and they still didn't repent. I want to read verses 6 to 11 again. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. So God judges according to what people have done, just as he judges according to truth. So Paul here is speaking to people's consistent actions and the total impact of a person's character and conduct. So for example, King David back in the Old Testament, he once killed a woman's husband because he wanted to be with her. However, the sum total of his life was still in obedience to God. Then on the other hand, you've got another example. You've got Judas, one of Jesus' disciples. He gave Jesus up, which led to his death, and then he confessed his sin and he gave the blood money uh, that he got from selling Jesus out to the, back to the Pharisees. He gave them the money back which they used to buy a field so that strangers could bury their dead in an unknown land if need be. But yet the sum total of his life was in the majority of disobedience and unbelief to God. So the truth that Paul is trying to highlight here is that true saving faith will result in obedience and godly living, even though not one of us is perfect and we're all bound to slip up and fall sometimes. God not only judges according to truth, but he also judges according to our actions because he judges our, quote, secret life, like the inner being. He he sees what's in our hearts. And when God weighs up the actions of the Jews compared to the actions of the Gentiles, he found them being just as bad as each other. So let's move on to verses 12 to 16. It says this, when the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed, even though they had never had God's written law. And the Jews, who do have God's law, will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law does not make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts. 
for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they are doing right. And this is the message that I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. So I really find verses 15 to 16 interesting, and I'm just going to read it again just so it, you know, really sinks in. Even the Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they are doing right. I feel that that's so true even for us today. Wherever you go, you'll always find people with some kind of sense of inner right or wrong, like this almost inner judge inside all of us. I mean, all cultures have some sense of sin, a fear of judgment and some kind of attempt to right their wrongs and right their sins and appease whatever gods are feared. And I think in mainstream media and society today, they like to tell us to push that voice down or to shrug it away or to, you know, like drink it away, drug it away, party it away, like all that stuff. They just want to do other things to shove their conscience down. And when, yeah, it's obviously our conscience, but here it also says that God has written the law on our very hearts. So therefore we don't have any excuse. Verses 17 to 24 says, You who call yourselves Jews are relying on God's law and you boast about your special relationship with him. You know what he wants. You know what is right because you have been taught his law. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God. For you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say, the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. So, This section just really drives home the fact that you can act as righteously and holy as you want, but ultimately God sees what's in your heart. It's possible for a Jew to be guilty of theft, adultery, or even idolatry, even if no one really saw them physically do this act. And this is because these kinds of sins can be committed in the heart. And the Bible talks more about that on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. But let's just keep moving to verses 25 to 29. And it says this, The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law but don't obey it. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. So, Real quick, if you didn't know, the act of circumcision is a Jewish tradition and it originally symbolized the mark of the covenant that God made with Abraham way back in the book of Genesis. I think it's chapters 12 to 17. If you want to read it and know what the ceremony is all about, go read it there. But yeah, 
even um, if you don't know what a covenant is, it's basically an agreement between two parties. And usually if either part fails to meet their responsibilities, meaning if the covenant gets broken, then neither party has to fulfill the expectations of the covenant. And in that case, when a covenant was dependent on both parties keeping commitments, then both parties would have to pass in between pieces of animals. Like that was the ceremony. So, however, the Abrahamic covenant is an unconditional covenant, meaning that in Genesis 15, God alone was the one who moved between the halves of the animals. And because he did this alone, it meant that the covenant was primarily God's promise and he bound himself to the covenant. So, even if Abraham or his descendants failed the covenant, God never would. So you can actually read all the the statements that God made and all his promises in Genesis chapter 12. So the sign of this covenant, as I said, was circumcision, and it meant that they would carry out a lifelong mark in their flesh and that uh, that mark would show that they were physically part of God's physical blessing in the world. And anyone who didn't get circumcised was declaring themselves to be outside of God's covenant. And no one, no self-respecting Jew wanted to, sh- to be like that. So the point of me explaining this is to explain that because of this covenant the Jews had with God, they considered the Gentiles to be uncircumcised, quote, dogs. And look, they looked down on them a lot. But the sad thing that they failed to realize is that a true follower of God's is one who has an inward spiritual change in the heart and not just some outward physical mark. Today, a lot of people get this mixed up with things like baptism, church membership, taking communion, you know, like the bread and the wine, the tokens at church. But let me be clear, just because you've been baptized or you go to church regularly, or even if you take communion all the time, that doesn't mean that you've experienced a true heart renewal What really shows that is when you truly live to have a personal relationship with God and out of the overflow of that love for God, you actually do good good deeds and you want to obey him. Anyway, last section, let's get into it. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 8, it says, Then what's the advantage of being a Jew? Is there any value in the ceremony of circumcision? Yes, there are great benefits. First of all, the Jews were entrusted with the very words of God, you know, God's word, the Bible. True, some of them were unfaithful, but just because they were unfaithful, does it mean God will be unfaithful? Of course not. Even if everyone else is a liar, God is true. As the scriptures say about him, you will be proved right in what you say. You will win your case in court. But some might say, our sinfulness serves a good purpose, for it helps people to see how righteous God is. Isn't it unfair then for him to punish us? This is merely a human point of view. Of course not. If God were not entirely fair, how would he be qualified to judge the world? But, someone might still argue, how can God condemn me as a sinner if my dishonesty highlights his truthfulness and brings him more glory? And some people might even slander us by claiming that we say, the more we sin, the better it is. Those who say such things deserve to be condemned. So here Paul summarizes arguments that he's been having with Jews who have tried to debate this topic with him and they've asked him things like, what's the point of being a Jew then? Like, what are the advantages if the law doesn't even matter? But Paul's reply was saying that there's actually a lot of advantages to being a Jew. Like, for instance, the Jews were the ones who were entrusted with the very words of God. They were entrusted with the Bible. They were entrusted with the fact of passing that Bible down to us today, to future generations. 
And they also asked, will the unfaithfulness of the Jews cancel out God's goodness and faithfulness? To which Paul was saying, you know, absolutely not. In fact, it establishes it even more. And then I think the third argument was they were asking, well, if our sin condemns righteousness, then how can he judge us? And Paul's final answer to that was that we shouldn't sin just so that we can create more evil so that more good may come of it. God wants to judge the world properly and fairly and righteously. There's, there's no point in going out to create evil just so that something good can happen. Like that, It's ridiculous. So to summarize this section, don't play games with God. Don't try to play games with his word either. Don't be fake and try to live two different kinds of lives because at the end of the day, God sees our hearts anyway, and there's no point in trying to fake our way to heaven. All we can do is pray and study and seek God and to take your relationship with him day by day and just seek to grow in understanding and living authentically. I hope all of that makes sense and I hope I was as clear as possible, but that's going to be it for today's episode and I really hope that you enjoyed it. I hope that you guys have a really great rest of your week and I'll see you guys in the next one. Okay, bye everyone.